Good morning, everyone. Paul from the innovation community here. Today, I'm with St. John Deakins or Singe. And Singe has been working in personal data management and is currently the CEO and founder of CitizenMe, which is aiming to give individuals more power over their data. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be on your show. Yeah, great to have you, as I said. Now, tell us a bit about yourself in a few words and also a bit about CitizenMe as well. Uh, so I've got kind of a background um, doing internet digital innovation for the last 25 years or so, um, which I'll, I guess I'll tell you through in a second. But the um, citizen me is kind of a culmination of that. So what we're doing at the moment is uh, effectively distributing out personal data to individuals, to, to, to people, and giving you the, the ability to um, get the full value of that, that personal data. Personal data kind of fuels the internet. Um, it's a marketplace, there are marketplaces that we all participate in. We're just not aware of the fact that we participate in them. Um, so what we're doing as Citizen Me is kind of enabling brands to talk directly to consumers and what we call citizens, you know, on the internet um, and have a kind of a direct and real-time information uh, communication, uh, basically data conversations effectively. And where did your career in data really start? Uh, it's a good question. I, I um, started off, um, I did a politics and economics degree and ended up temping at British Telecom, uh, managing marketing databases. Um, and had, I was lucky enough to have a, a couple of really good managers who kind of gave me some, some good career advice about um, planning, planning your own career, kind of really kind of focusing it on um, finding out what really kind of floats your boat, but by doing generic stuff in your 20s, so you can really kind of... Uh, understand and, uh, and appreciate kind of what the, the different roles inside organizations um so that was at british telecom and then i moved into uh from there uh what was the the oldest daily newspaper in the world which was a company called lloyd's list uh lloyd's of london press so it's the old uh insurance and shipping newspaper um and i just happened to be there at the time when the internet was really starting to take off um really got into the potential of the internet and help Lloyd's List go online back in 96. So first newspaper to do so. Um, and we started making revenues quite quickly because the information was really, really valuable. Um, if you're looking at shipping tables in Hong Kong and it takes you three days to get a daily newspaper, um, the ships already left the port by the time you get the paper. Um, so that was making profits in about six months. Um, and we put kind of insurance day and various other, newspapers online at the same time 96 97 um and then moved into a digital agency uh and really got into kind of innovation um and and saw the power of transformation working with people like british airways at the end of the 90s fantastic stuff so uh, what are you up to now i mean what is really the the aim to grow citizen me so for, for citizen me um the, uh, the the purpose, I guess, is so for the last decade through from 2000 through to about 2010, um, I moved out to Asia and I basically helped probably around 100 million people get on the Internet with, with platforms that was building out um, used by telcos to help people get online. Uh, and that was kind of old school SMS, MMS and then into uh, what was called WAP in the early days and then um, became basically just digital connectivity on smartphones. Um, 
and it kind of became really apparent when I was doing that, that you've got hundreds of millions of people kind of going online very, very quickly. And they're switching large kind of populations of the world in Latin America and Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, Africa, um, onto the internet. But once they get there, they're basically kind of really actually being funneled into a few, a few silos. And you also kind of realize that the, the real value, um, I mean, telcos are basically selling pipes and connectivity, but the real value for the internet is, is driven off personalization and, and personal data, uh, which drives all of the big kind of Silicon Valley services. Um, so from there, you kind of realize actually there's this kind of gap that needs to be filled, which is personal agency with that data. If you can empower individuals to actually have a copy, so you're not replacing anything, but you're just getting a copy of data from everywhere on the internet, and you can run that on your own smartphone, and you can apply AI, your own personal AI on your smartphone to give you personal insights, those become incredibly valuable. And when you aggregate those up to the hundreds of thousands at a time, uh, you basically provide a a really valuable new source of of information for, for the internet as a whole. But, uh, and especially for brands and companies that are dealing with customers. Sure. And, and what's really kept your interest about working in the data space for, for so long? Well, I was going to say earlier, earlier I mean, um, when I first started working for, for agency.com, which is then became part of Omnicom, uh, we worked with British Airways. Uh, British Airways were going through this transformation. They realized that um, the internet was a big thing. This is probably about 97, 98 uh, and was going to have a massive impact. And there was kind of a, a very far-sighted CEO at the time who basically told the whole organization in two years, they were going to switch from 2% of revenues going digital to 50% of revenues had a massive impact on the business. Um, and we kind of quickly kind of worked out what areas of the business could be, um, what revenues can be digitized most most quickly um, through web pools, through, through business services, for instance, uh, and business connectivity. And we um, we enabled, enabled the organization to to hit the goal. And from that, you realize the transformation that can happen. After that, I worked with uh, T-Mobile um, and kind of came up with um, what's now called Omnichannel, or multiple digital channels. Uh, and you realize that when people move between digital places, just like moving between physical places, you're changing digital context and therefore you want to be spoken to in different ways. Uh, but you want to connect up around the individual. Uh, and that was uh, really profoundly interesting because then you realize that actually what we're doing digitally is really a mirror in many ways of what we do in, in, the real, in real life. And those two things are starting to merge and they've certainly done that over the last kind of 15 years or so. Uh, our digital lives and our physical lives are becoming pretty much the same thing. We used to talk about going online as being a destination. Uh, and now the two are, are pretty much seamless um, and, and completely kind of intertwined. Um, and that's fascinating because that's basically a, a completely new way of society working. Um, and then you realize that we're moving out of the industrial area, which is all about kind of physical things and replacing brawn. And we're actually moving now into a digital era, which is about uh, information and knowledge and enhancing our ability um, to, to gain that knowledge. Uh, we're just now at the point where we're really seeing it coming through and it's kind of accelerating very, very fast, which is exciting. It is very exciting. And I think it's hard to talk about 
people these days not having a digital footprint of some sort. Uh, it's kind of part and parcel with this society that we we live in. But you know, when it comes to personal data, how is government policy like uh, GDPR in 2018 and also more recently the California Consumer Privacy Act going to really affect the landscape moving forward, both for organizations, but also for individuals as well? It's, it's fascinating because there was, there was a lot of talk at the time um, when kind of legislation came through in Europe that uh, it was going to really have a, an immediate effect, especially a lot of people in the, the data and privacy space, um, and kind of chief privacy officers, data officers, etc. Um, and actually it's taken a while to come through, um, but it is having a kind of a, a huge but slow moving impact. Um, so GDPR uh, has obviously had an impact in the short term, but it's actually led, led to things like CCPA in California. Uh, CCPA in California is being followed on. There's legislation called CPRA in California, which is like CCPA 2.0. So there's more legislation coming through. If you talk to execs in large, say, American companies, there's a belief that uh, CCPA will kind of become the default. Um, if the Democrats get in later this year, it will happen quickly. If Republicans stay in, it will ha happen state by state and more slowly. But in the next five, five to ten years, it, GDPR type legislation will become the global norm. Uh, if it's across states in the US, for instance. Uh, and there's also reg reg registration, so regulation coming through in um, uh, Australia, Singapore, um, a lot of countries are, are coming up with new um, regulation. Japan is looking to leapfrog GDPR and actually give people a right to their own data uh, with data banks. Um, so certainly in the next four or five years, we're kind of at the start of this, this shift. Um, and you're seeing uh, things like advertising technology, uh, which pretty much kind of relied on uh, unconsented personal data kind of being kind of thrown around in billions of transactions a second. Um, for, for digital advertising are starting to have a really, really tough time. Uh, all of that, that kind of um, activity is now shifting because of GDPR into the big silos of uh, Facebook and Google and Amazon. Um, so the, those kind of changes are, are massive big shifts, but they're happening over, over years, not, not months. Yeah, I find that very interesting in terms of development. There was a lot of talk about GDPR a couple of years ago. It's almost like it's been swept under the carpet, but I think it's really important that, that people are still aware of their own rights, but also organizations and how they can approach these kind of challenges as well. Uh, you mentioned a few earlier, but what are some of the other major successes that you've achieved over your career? I was just going to say on that GDPR point, I, there's kind of an immediate reaction to GDPR. Um, which is making sure that you're compliant with the regulation. And then there's a systemic um, kind of impact that it has. Uh, and that systemic impact uh, is taking kind of time to work through, but it's much, much bigger than the, the noise that we had around GDPR and all those emails that we got telling us that, you know, would we still consent to our email being kept by a company, that kind of thing. That was kind of the froth on top of the, the move, really. Um, anyway, sorry. So in terms of other, other things I've done, um, so the, in terms of transformation, the, the British Airways experience was, was, uh, was huge, obviously with Lloyds of London kind of shifting them digital for a, a newspaper that was started in 1734 or something. Uh, it was massive. Um, the, the most interesting thing I did through um, 
that while I was in, in Asia is actually kind of enabling those hundreds of millions of people to, to get online uh, through kind of digital, digital platforms and, and seeing that kind of wave of the mobile phone becoming the primary digital connectivity device. Um, and then with Citizen Me, we've kind of been leading the, I mean, we've been around for six or seven years now. Um, we had a first version of the platform, which was much more about kind of activism and, and kind of reaction to, uh, to what was happening with personal data. Um, Citizen Me, as it stands now, is much more proactive. Uh, and we're recognized, uh, we've won loads of awards. We're recognized generally in the industry as being the, the leading player in the space. Um, and I certainly believe that we're, we're pushing that conversation forward in terms of the way that the, the internet will structure around data. And there was obviously other big voices. Um, Tim Berners-Lee pushing uh, something called Solid. Uh, so Tim Berners-Lee, who, who kind of invented the World Wide Web, um, is pushing Solid, which is, a, again, about distributed personal data. So there's kind of a movement taking place. And I'm, I'm kind of very proud that we're uh, at the forefront of that movement. Absolutely. And how are you currently leveraging technology to your advantage and what effects do you think it will have over the next few years? We're at the forefront te technologically. Uh, we're at the forefront of, of distributed technology. Uh, so we host everything out on people's individual smartphones. So there's an application you download, um, you do fun activities and the process of doing those fun activities uh, you pull a copy of your data from various different places around the web and that could be anywhere from obvious places like Facebook and Instagram uh, through to your census information and your in the UK your DVLA driving license information uh, or could be health kit step count the apps that you use every day do you get a copy of all this information which is currently used by other people that you're not fully aware of um, and that all stays on your device, that stays on your smartphone. Uh, we then have algorithms which are completely transparent to you, which you can use to surface these insights. And those insights could be things like, um, based on my step count and the weather, um, that I'm generally slightly happier when it's sunnier and I do more exercise when it's sunnier. Um, unless I'm sitting in a shopping center, in which case, I'm doing the step count and it's sunny outside, but I'm less happy because I don't particularly like shopping centers. So you get those kind of contextual insights about yourself, but that's really valuable for other people. We do all of that at the edge. So we've got 270,000 um, people using the platform and that effectively becomes like a, a global distributed database. So all the actual data sits out in India, the Philippines, Brazil, US, UK, France, etc. cetera, uh, all out on the edge. And then we have a platform that talks to all of those different data repositories if you like. So that's really, really cutting edge stuff. That's, uh, that's the way the future, the, for me, the way the future of the internet, that's the way that things will naturally go. Uh, there's massive structural um, benefits in terms of efficiencies for use of electricity and things, but also in terms of security, uh, we don't hold any data. We've got a zero data platform. Uh, all the data sits out with individuals. We just connect people, individuals, citizens, to, to brands and health researchers and, and anyone else who um, has an in, interest in having those data conversations. Um, completely radical architecture. Uh, we were lauded by the Royal Society for it um, last year. Um, so that, that for me is kind of cutting edge tech. Um, it's talked about a lot 
when people kind of talk about things like blockchain. Uh, we've done a lot of research into where places we can use blockchain, but it's not quite ready for us yet in terms of transactions. We're running at about 4,000 transactions per second. Uh, and blockchain Ethereum runs at about 14 at the moment. So it's, it's got a ways to go to catch up. Um, but certainly see that kind of part of the future is another distributed technology. Uh, the other tech we're using is distributed uh, AI. So we're increasing pushing, increasingly pushing algorithms out to devices um, and then actually training up algorithms across devices too. Pretty interesting stuff. So how has COVID-19 affected your role as, as the CEO and also the wider organization? Uh, it's had a huge impact. Um, I mean, organizationally, for me, for me as an individual, uh, the organization also for, for our customers as well. Um, for, for me as an individual, we, we had a team in London and then we have a team of developers who, who are remote. Uh, and as, obviously as soon as, about a week before lockdown in the UK, we all, we all switched to remote. Um, and the, uh, the impact on the organization has been, been amazing. Um, we're now on equal footing being remote. Uh, we use Slack a huge amount. Uh, we use lots of kind of video chats, um, but we're way more coordinated um, than we were when we were a hybrid organization, kind of half physical office and half remote. Um, far, far more efficient, far better communication. For me personally, I'm, I'm actually much in much better contact across the entire team uh, than we were when we're in an office and also the, uh, the the team that we're working in office are much happier um, because they're not doing a you know, one of one of the team members is doing three hours commuting every day um, and she feels she's she's you know gained her life back um, so that's been a that's been a really massive impact uh, and there have been challenges around kind of organization and there's lots of stuff we can still learn uh, and there are, there are organizations that have been doing this for quite a while um, People like you know WordPress have been doing this for for a decade almost. Um, so there's lots of learning we're making. There's there's the social side of the organisation uh, and interaction we obviously need to make up for. We have plans for that. Um, from our from our customer point of view, though, we've seen a, a, a it's becoming a cliche, but a rapid acceleration to digitisation. So we provide our, our first minimum viable market, if you like, is. Uh, insights uh, and we provide uh, organizations within the moment always on insights uh, you can ask people to take a picture of you know, their dog and the dog food they use uh, and get that back straight away because uh, it's all distributed out on devices uh, and there's been a massive uptick in uh, in interest in that that kind of platform um, and those kind of immediate immediate insights with the data behind that as well um, the other the other big impact though has been in the last pretty five or six months so just a bit before covid hit but it's certainly accelerated is companies looking to to license our technology so we've got large international telcos credit card companies running proof of concepts on our privacy enhancing tech if you like our, our distributed data tech zero data platform um looking to use that for uh, for their own internal services things like loyalty programs um and that has really kind of taken off in the last three four months so that we've just seen a again it's become a bit of a cliche but five years worth of change happening in three or four months uh, just in terms of kind of attitudes and, and the acceleration that's happened 
Fantastic stuff. So, so how would you describe your leadership style when you're working with your team members? Uh, I generally, um, <laughs> should I tell you, I'm um, quite hands-off. I look at kind of um, what I try to do is find good people, give them um, kind of vision, direction, and goals, uh, and let them get on dirt and then kind of check in with them regularly. Um, in terms of kind of how they're how they're um, kind of approaching those goals and, and tackling them, and kind of try and take more of a a coaching attitude uh, and a, a kind of a, a guiding attitude. But I think you have to let people kind of find their their own path, especially in an area like us where actually we want lots of diverse ideas and diverse thinking in terms of kind of the the potential paths. Um, and then once you decide on a path to take, do lots of testing. Um, and kind of iteratively learn, um, but setting a direction above that in terms of kind of the, the goal that we have, the goal that we have. And what do you think the biggest mistake you made during your career was? Uh, that was that's a really good question. Um, I'm sure there were many, many, many. Um, I'm sure other people tell you mistakes as well. Um, something that's really interesting for me is I, I'd always had this, so when I was at BT, I was kind of giving this advice about kind of creating your own career path and, and really kind of being trying to tune into what really kind of floats your boat um, uh, and what kind of where, what direction enables you to thrive. Um, and I always had this kind of idea about kind of setting up my own business and I kind of figured, I'd, okay, I'm going to do a, a departmental role and then I'll take a regional VP role and then after I've done that and I've got some experience I'll then kind of go and do a, a startup uh, and actually I probably got another startup five years before I did um, and there's this scary thing about when you first become an entrepreneur um, after being inside an organization everything's kind of handled for you you've got an HR department you've got a finance department um, you've got all these support kind of ancillary services um, and so you feel like um, you've you've got a lot of things taken care of and the idea of kind of going out on your own is actually quite scary um and then once you've done it you actually realize it's relatively straightforward as long as you have a clear idea about that what it is what the objective is and you've got a good idea about how how you're going to approach it and, and um, what process you're going to use um it's a lot more straightforward than than i'd certainly imagined um, but it can be quite a scary thing. That last company I worked for as well had, um, they ended up having four or five different VCs on the board. They were all very nice individuals, but had different, what are called event horizons in terms of what they thought was going to happen to the company. Um, and it was kind of running without a CEO for, for a good kind of 12 months. Um, and I was bringing in about 70% of the revenue from Asia. It's a British company. Um, and you kind of then see how, in some ways dysfunctional companies can become um so i could have left that company certainly kind of a couple of years before and, and started up the company that i then went went on to to found um uh yeah and i kind of I sold that company what five years later uh to american private equity um so that kind of for me i guess the lesson from that is um to yeah if you if you believe strongly enough you should you should go do it and you should jump um and follow that dream yeah I, I definitely know the feeling there what's the best piece of advice you ever received uh that's that's a good question um 
I think um, that kind of question about kind of planning, planning your own career and kind of um, listening to your own inner voice, if you like, about kind of where, where your, what your direction should be and where you're going. Um, it's easy for all of us to get into to ruts and um, get into kind of a, a routine. Um, and I think kind of we all know inside when there's, there's something that uh, we should really be doing. Um, in terms of kind of um, advice, I guess, about kind of building stuff, which is what I feel like I do, um, it's a bizarre one. It's my, my dad, when I was building a, uh, we, we built a boat together when I was about kind of eight or nine. Um, my dad really built the boat and I kind of put some varnish on it and things. Um, and there's a flotation tank in the sailing boat. And uh, I remember kind of like slapping on the, the, the varnish inside the float, the, the tank and not really kind of pay much attention to it. My dad basically saying that you should do it properly for two reasons the first one is because you're making this perfect boat and you're taking all making all this attention to the outside and you want it to be as, as beautiful on the inside as the outside and then the second point being um you might find yourself a mile offshore one day and the boat's just rotted through and you've got a long swim back to the shore so you kind of pay attention on the inside as much as the outside which i thought was great advice it is great advice as well what is your uh, top working from home tip uh, I think it's structure and routine. So I tend to structure my day. Um, I'm actually working slightly longer hours than I, I probably did. I mean, I used to listen to podcasts and things on the train. Um, and I'll take kind of 7.30 to about 9 is kind of quiet downtime. I can kind of plan, I can write things. Um, and that then, 9 o'clock, I tend to kick into kind of team catch-ups and things. Uh, and then the afternoons tend to be meetings and, and more admin work. And having that structure kind of really helps me um, through plan through the day and also kind of um, planning the team. But because those slots are a lot more, I mean, they tend to be a little bit Zoom and um, video driven. Um, but my, my diary is a lot more efficient now. Um, I don't have like half hour travel times between meetings and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that kind of structure and, and planning the day ahead may be obvious, but. Um, I think is, is incredibly important. I completely agree. What um, what are you really curious about right now? Uh, I'm really curious about. So, I mean, what we're doing feels like it's going to be the norm. I think in the next two to three years, we're going to see a big switch. Um, what really fascinates me is things like uh, is the way we're dealing with artificial intelligence and, and the conversations around that. And it's still a little bit, you know, kind of metropolis, kind of old school. Um, we're going to have, you know, iRobot, um, bad AI. Uh, and there's lots of stuff around um, uh, some of the more advanced AI and kind of fake news and things. The new J GPT-3 um, from OpenAI is, is really fascinating just in terms of kind of the, the natural language processing being used there. Um, but I think there's there's also this kind of media. It's it's very easy to write a horror story, um, and a fear story about um, the the perils. Um, what I think is really fascinating is we're on the cusp of having something. Um, actually, friend Neil Lawrence, uh, uh, who's a machine learning professor at Cambridge, um, coined 
um, system zero AI. So we've got this kind of system one and system two thinking, right, which is Kahneman, where kind of system, system two is our deliberate kind of thoughtful um, uh, thought processes when we come to a decision. System one is our kind of gut reaction. Um, and Neil came up with this idea of system zero AI. So whatever AI we come up with has always got to serve our system one and system two thinking. Um, and that I think we're kind of on the cusp of getting to where if we can have complete transparency about the AIs that are working for us, that the, the algorithms, the scripts, the, the models, um, and we know how accurate they are and we can integrate them into our uh, system one and system two, our, our brains and the way that we think and not integrate physically, but just in terms of um, our, our behaviors and our habits, that then becomes really powerful. And what that really means is we have our own personal AI agent. Um, and I think we're kind of pretty four to five years away from, from those things becoming really solid. Um, things like Siri and kind of the Amazon kind of equivalent, um, uh, they're kind of basically chatbots. Um, I think we, we're going to have something which uh, is much more profoundly kind of personal for us. But for that to happen, it has to happen with us. It can't happen in the cloud. Uh, if you lose your Wi-Fi connection, you can't use your agent, right? So we have to have stuff deployed with us on our smartphones, which are personal agents, um, which really massively help us in our day-to-day -day routines. They kind of become uh, kind of tools like a, like a bicycle helps us. Um, instead of walking, we can, we can become much more efficient by cycling, um, which I think is a, an old Steve Jobs um, kind of term. But um, same thing for computers. We're at a stage where the tools really will serve us but they have to be system zero. They have to be set up and created to, to serve us as individuals. Makes a lot of sense. Who's your favorite thought leader in this space or author, maybe even outside the space? Yeah, it was, um, it's interesting. So for me, um, kind of the, the first sci-fi author I ever got into was, um, was H.G. Wells. He was like, for me, the kind of the first sci-fi author of the 21st cent 20th century, right? Kind of, post Jules Verne and so a lot of that kind of early thinking I think is still really relevant today and it's basically kind of um, driving a lot of the kind of um, fundamentals of kind of um, sci-fi and sci-fi is basically just speculation about our future right and kind of good or bad um, so it's technology and human condition combined which I find fascinating um, so I mean kind of going through those um, those kind of sci-fi authors I, I find fascinating, H.G. Uh, Wells through to obviously Clark, obviously. Um, and then actually things like Black Mirror, it's like if you look at kind of um, the, the, the kind of dystopian future side of thing, I find that fascinating just in terms of kind of giving us warnings about um, where our future may go. Um, in terms of kind of uh, slightly less dystopian, <laughs> Uh, people like Yuval um, Harari, um, obviously um, kind of very popular at the moment. Um, and that's a kind of fantastic set of books. Um, I also like things like um, uh, kind of some of the, the original kind of um, stoic thinkers when you look at the human condition. Um, so you look at people like Marcus Aurelius and things, um, just in terms of reminding us about humanity if that makes sense. Not quite contemporary, but um, I think they're really, really important voices. Um, also all the Enlightenment thinkers like uh, Tom Paine and things as well. 
I think that some of the best ideas have been around for the longest. Uh, you know, Meditations by Aurelius is, is a difficult but insightful read. It's, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing book. Amazing book. Um, and then, I mean, people like Tom Penn and the Alignment thing, because I mean, a lot of that thinking, I mean, about, you know, which led to the American Constitution is so relevant right now as well, because um, mm. we're going through, we have a new era. So how do you apply thinking on kind of liberty and right to self um, in a digital era where we're all suddenly connected as a global, global nation, right? We are one nation. So how does all that thinking now apply? So the, the thinking's still completely relevant. It's just our context has shifted and we're all kind of a little bit lost because of the shift. Um, so there's a bit of catching up to do, I think. Agreed. What advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data? Uh, I'd say remember it's the stories. So we're I mean, talking about kind of old old thinkers. I mean, if you look at Plato, um, uh, Plato basically said about um, story storytelling being the greatest gift. Um, it was kind of the most powerful gift. Um, it's the memory, remembering the stories in the data, and, the, and the, it's the human stories in the data. Um, I think sorry, Plato said, said storytellers rule the world. And it's those human stories in the data which are which are profoundly important for us. It's very easy to get lost up in the lost in the detail. Um, and the, the biggest story that we can tell is for me is is liberty um, and about human agency and human progress. And we can do we can enable that through data, which is for me profoundly important and exciting, also slightly scary. Um, so, yeah, basically remember the human stories in the data. Fantastic advice from Singe Deakins from Citizen Me. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.